Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Welcome to Basic Folk. This is a podcast where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm your host, Cindy House. Hope everybody's doing okay. Uh, is still in quarantine. Um, I have a mild case of poison ivy, um, which is a, a funny story how I got it. Um, I was rescuing um, the dog who decided to uh, waltz down this hill. And Pittsburgh Hills, and uh, off the back of people's houses, are filled with, like, debris and old weeds and tons of poison ivy. Um, so it was quite an adventure getting him back up the hill. And uh, we're lucky that I am only suffering a mild case of poison ivy. But man, does it suck. I just hate it. Anyways, you're here today to listen to an interview with Narissa Nields. Narissa is a guitarist, songwriter, and singer best known for performing with her sister Katrina in The Nields, and they perform as a duo together. She grew up outside of Washington, D.C., surrounded by music and politics, which had a profound impact on her formative years. She especially found herself greatly influenced by the music of Pete Seeger. These days, Narissa finds it more difficult to find common ground with those she disagrees with politically, but she's refreshingly honest about how she feels. In fact, this whole conversation with Narissa is filled with incredibly honest and revealing realizations that she's discovered along the way. I really appreciated her forwardness with some pretty sensitive questions like considering a childless life after her divorce in her mid-30s. I admire how much she was willing to put her story out there for others. I've been a huge fan of the Neilds since high school, and Narissa's music actually really changed my life and opened my eyes to a modern-era underground folk movement. What's wild is that the first time I saw the Neilds was at MixFest in 1999. Mix 98.5 was a hot AC station in the Boston area, and for a while they hosted a concert every year in Government Center in downtown Boston. So the Neilds were playing alongside Ben Folds Five, Fleming and John, and those were the two acts that I was go. I was brought there by Ben Folds Five and Fleming and John. That's who I was there to see. Uh, also Duran Duran and Lou Vega, the Mambo Number no. Five guy, performed. It was wild. Anyways, I uh, discovered the Neilds then and loved their music and fell in love with their music, and this was quite a thrill to talk to Narissa. Uh, appreciate you listening, and we'll get into our conversation with Narissa Neils on Basic Folk. Thank you so much for talking to me. Um, so you grew up outside of Washington, D.C., and I was wondering if you could talk about like what your family looked like, um, siblings and parents, and also can you explain the vibe of your family? It sounds like a pretty special yeah. vibe. 
Yeah. Well, we are originally from New York City, both sides, and and my parents were betrothed to each other when their younger sisters were in kindergarten. So the two family, and they didn't actually meet till they were teenagers, but the two families were in the same social circles. So I grew up with this I, this idea of, uh, and this reality of a very close family where both sides, you know, knew each other and loved each other and holidays were spent with both families together. Um, and I think that probably had a significant influence. There were lots of musicians in my family and Katrina's in my family. The two huge values were music and political justice, democracy, principles of equality and justice for all. And that behind both of those sort of moral pillars was this sense of community and love and trying to do good in the world. Um, My parents' first date was uh, to see a Weavers concert and they fell in love to the folk song, Last Night I Had the Strangest Dream. And they... um, took Katrina and me and my younger sister, our younger sister, Abigail, to see Pete Seeger and Arlo Guthrie every year at Wolf Trap. We would go see Peter, Paul, and Mary. We grew up listening to Odette records and um, my father singing all manner of folk songs and spirituals um, with his acoustic guitar and my mother harmonizing. So... That if that gives you a view, and we went to we went to schools that were very supportive of the performing arts, very encouraging of the performing arts, and we both participated heavily in those things. I I know Pete Seeger has had a huge influence on your family, and your dad had a direct connection to him. Like, didn't Pete Seeger give him a singing lesson as a kid? More than that. Um, You know, of course, Pete Seeger was blacklisted in the 50s for his refusing to testify against his friends in Congress during the House of House Un-American Activities Committee meetings. He pleaded the First Amendment rather than the Fifth and said, I have the right to say whatever I want to say and to sing whatever I want to sing. And for that, he was blacklisted and he couldn't perform in theaters, you know, in most venues. But He was hired by a lot of colleges and schools to sing to young people. And his brother happened to be the geography teacher at my dad's elementary school. (laughs) So Pete Seeger came in very frequently, you know, as a guest of his brother to sing to the kids. Oh, wow. And I want to talk about seeing Pete Seeger and Arlo Guthrie perform in concert. You said you'd watch every year. Um, what impression did he leave on you as a young person? Like you got to see him, I don't know for how many years long, but years, I mean, I can't count the years. Um, you know, the image that's coming to mind is, and I know Katrina would say this too. (laughs) I just remember, you know, they would swap songs and then they would also sing songs together, Arlo and Pete, and they were so lovely to each other. So one of the things... I got from those concerts was this real camaraderie and sharing artistically and generosity. You know, nobody was trying to outdo the other. 
And I remember one time they were sort of ad-libbing a little bit and Pete was going to sing a song and they said, you know what, Arlo, you sing this song. I'm just going to listen. And Pete <laughs> lay down on the stage and he was, I will never forget this. He was wearing running shoes, like old beat up running shoes. <laughs> and I remember his long feet and his long legs stretched out on the stage and he was just tapping one of his running shoes, you know, tap, tap, <laughs> tap along to Arlo's piano playing and singing and just totally enjoying himself, totally relaxed, lying on the stage. <laughs> and I think that had a gigantic influence on both of us. Like, we don't need to put on some fancy show. We're, we're all here to enjoy the music and to kind of claim a higher purpose, which is fairness and love and joy and um, kind of encouraging each other through music and participation. You said this about attending church with those pe people in your community, um, in, Wash in the community of Washington, D.C., you interface with a lot of people that had different political views than you and your family. Yeah. Um, this yeah. is kind of a long quote, sorry. Um, we worshiped with government bureaucrats and lobbyists and Pentagon employees. We might have been a congregation divided by politics, but we all knew that any everyone in that space loved their country and loved their God. Can you expand on finding that commonality with people who disagree with you at church? And how does that practice translate for you outside of church and possibly in your writing? Oh, man. Well, let me first of all say that was kind of an ideal situation in an ideal time. And I don't feel that way today. I wish I could say otherwise, but I live in this very progressive town in Western Massachusetts. I go to a tiny little church now in the hill towns of the Berkshires. I don't think there's a single person there who would identify as a Republican even. Um, not to, and nobody there would, I don't think voted for the current Republican president whose name I won't say. <laughs> um, and I would have a very hard time today going back to that church of my youth and feeling comfortable there. Um, my parents still do, and they're wonderful. You know, they, they, uh, I think, I think that because they've lived there and they know those people so well, they, they can get beyond that. Um, so I don't, and I'm not patting myself on the back at all. I wish I weren't like this, but I feel like I too have just become sort of, um, part of the detritus of what's happened in this country in terms of polarization. Um, it's so hard for me to separate my politics and from my morality. I mean, to me, they're one and the same. Um, and and I think what's being done today by our government is criminal um, mm. and immoral. You know, the lying about, uh, ab you know, fact, scientific facts, <laughs> for mm. starters. However, I guess I will say that, that my ideal is still to get beyond those differences. And I recognize that we need to if we're going to survive as a country that I can't have it be Nerissa's country full of progressives. That's not ever what the history of this country has been. It's always been a nation 
divided over very huge um, moral issues Hmm. from the beginning, you know, Hmm. with slavery. Yeah. So can we talk about when you started to play guitar? Did you pick it up at 13? I was 11. My dad gave me my first guitar on my 11th birthday. And I was a gigantic Beatles fan. And I was so excited to start learning how to play Beatles songs. And I remember, you know, I, I, I also started that year to babysit and I bought myself this book at the music store called Beatles Complete for Easy Guitar. And it was a white book and it was gigantic. And my dad taught me my first, um, you know, six chords, maybe 10 chords. And that book kind of taught me the rest. And for several years, that's all I had. I didn't take any other lessons. Hmm. And I just tried to teach myself these songs out of this book. I would get very, very frustrated. And I think of that all the time now because it was such a slow process for me to learn the guitar. Of course, now I can play the guitar. You know, whenever I'm beginning anything new and I get that sort of frustrated feeling, I'm like, remember, it took a long time to learn to play the guitar. And now you teach guitar. I do, yeah. Yeah. What made you want to start writing your own songs? And when did you and Katrina start making music together? I I wanted to be a songwriter from the age of seven. And I don't remember, I I just did an interview yesterday where I was trying to remember what was the inciting incident for that. And I I don't know. I just know that from the age of seven, I wanted to be a singer-songwriter. And But I didn't write a successful song till I was 13. So you do have that detail, right? From a, almost right away, I wanted Katrina to sing with me, but we didn't actually start singing together until I was, I guess I was 20 and she was 18. And we started playing at open mic nights together with um, David Jones, who later became David Neal's and our guitar player and my ex-husband. And it was just really natural for Katrina and me to sing together. So here's here's something that I've been thinking about um, well, thinking about talking to you and thinking about Katrina and your family, it seemed like your family is so close. So what kind of, was there ever, was there ever a time where you felt rebellious as like a teenager or felt frustrated as a teenager? Cause you always just, both of you seem like such like well-behaved people. That's a good question. Well, first of all, Katrina, Katrina's two years younger than me, and she's a really nice person. (laughs) She's just a really good person. And I found her to be annoying when when she was little, and I was mean to her. I was like a very squashy older sister who, you know, was threatened by her, by her adorableness and her goodness. And I sort of see myself as like not so much rebellious in a – big way but you know cranky I was like the cranky kid in the family the kid who didn't want to go along with everybody else I wanted to be on my own and I just decided one day when I was 15 that I wanted to be friends with her I was like why am I wasting all this time being cranky I'm going to be nice to this awesome person who loves me so much and I literally told her it was Christmas and I was like I am so sorry for being a jerk to you all these years. I made you a book of poems and songs and photographs 
can we be friends? And she was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we were friends after that. And we were pretty good teenagers. We were pretty unrebellious in the sort of traditional ways. We were kind of good. I mean, <laughs> I don't have any <laughs> horrible rock and roll stories to tell you. We, you know, we just, we were, we were lucky. I think we have, we sort of avoided that whole period of drug addiction and, you know, terrible behavior. Did you ever get any speeding tickets? Oh yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. And car accidents. Jeez. Hopefully nothing serious. Nothing serious. Good. Um, you are a cum laude graduate of Yale. You have a BA with honors in English. Could you talk about how Yale changed you as a writer? In some ways, Yale was good for me. In some ways, Yale was a little bit of a hindrance. I'm sure that just kind of being immersed in that community sharpened me to a great extent. Um, and one of the thing, one of the reasons I wanted to go to Yale was something an older classmate of mine from my high school said. She'd gone, she had gotten into Yale, and she came back after a couple of years and said to me, you're really getting educated by your peers when you're at Yale. It's not so much your professors, it's your peers. And I definitely feel that way. Like it was my peers who made me who I am, especially politically, I think. I mean, my parents had a lot to do with that, but you know, in, in terms of sort of sharpening my sense of, I don't know, a sort of more critical look at Western democracy, that was definitely something my peers gave me. I sometimes wish I'd been braver at Yale and taken classes that were more tailored towards what I ended up becoming, which is an artist. I took a lot of literature classes, a lot of Shakespeare classes, some theater studies classes, a lot of music classes, but most of the music classes were very classically oriented and not that helpful to what I ended up doing. Um, sometimes I wish I'd gone to a much more kind of... Um, uh, a school where we could have chosen our own curriculum a little more, or there were more, um, you know, where there were any pop musicians or poets doing what I was doing. So, I mean, I think the thing that Yale really gave me, and this is sort of disgusting to say, but I, I sort of felt like it gave me a leg up just because it was an Ivy League. You know, it opened doors for me. But I don't think it was... I don't think it was a magic bullet in any way at all. Mm. And there are all sorts of things now that I would do differently if I could do them over again. The Neeld seemed like a band that were always fully themselves, like like you were saying, and that includes the way that you looked. Um, what kind of intentionality was given to the physical look of the group did you and Katrina ever feel pressure to, to change what you look like? No. I mean, I think Katrina and I are women born in the late 20th century who have all the issues that women born in our time have. You know, like we know we're supposed to look attractive. And um, I don't think we tried to not look attractive. I don't think we went crazy over it. We certainly didn't hire makeup people or do our hair, but we sort of had each of us, I think our own idea of what was our own comfort level with those issues. So we had fun going shopping, you know, we had fun like figuring out 
looking at each other and saying, how does this look on me? How does this look on you? You know, like, but it was just what we wanted to do. It wasn't like we were, again, putting on a mustache, you know, like we were just like, well, this is a fun thing to wear and it looks good on me. So I'm going to wear this. You know, we would watch MTV. We would see what other, um, or VH1 and we would see what other artists in our genre were wearing and get ideas from them. Um, but we didn't look very different from the way we looked in high school or college. Hmm. Probably cared a little bit more, but that came out of a sense of fun, not a sense of, oh, they're making me look like this, you know. Right. Well, that's good to hear. Um, so in 1996, uh, there were a couple of things that happened um, due to record label bureaucracy and a broken down van. It kind of changed the course of everything for the van band. Um, but you had this like really big fundraiser to raise a bunch of money for a new van and I read that it brought fans from all over the world together. Um, yeah, so that, that was actually 1998. It was um, 96 is when we got signed um, and released "Gotta Get Over Greta," and and that and we drove the van around that first van, Moby Juan Van Kenobi, the white van, for <laughs> you know hundreds of thousands of miles all over the continent. And the van broke down for good around June of two thousand of 1998. And that's when we had this jam for the van. And, and, um, and yes, people came from all over. And we sold, it was like a gigantic garage sale in addition to being a, a concert. You know, we like all found things that we thought our fans would pay money for. And had it was kind of like a fair. It was, and our drummer like <laughs> pretended that he was a fortune teller and wore like a headdress and gave predictions. And um, David Neal sold his collection of X Files VHS cassettes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Katrina and I sold some of our clothes. I think we sold a guitar. And I said I would I would knit sweaters for people who paid a certain amount of money, and I ended up knitting these sweaters for people. Um, and then we had this great show that I'll never forget. It was really wonderful, and we did. We raised enough money to buy this van, so we had our second van then. Um, in reading about that big benefit that happened in 1998, it seems as though it led you to be connected to your fans in a way that hadn't happened before, at least physically. Um, how did that, and then how did that feel to see your community coming together like that? Well, I, I don't think that was new. I, I mean, it was, what was, it was like a big reunion, but I think from the beginning, we had a very unusually tight connection with our fans. And from the beginning, we would have these fans who would vie with each other to see who could come to the most shows. We had fans who would make us action figures of ourselves and, you know, like, bring us candy and, you know, we, and we knew their names and we knew their, I mean, to this day, like I know the names of many, many, many of our fans and know the names of their children. And, you know, we, we've sung at people's weddings. We've, you know, we've, we've lost fans, fans have died, you know, mm. um, but we would have, and we would have this, we would have all sorts of fans that would like follow our van on road trips, you know, on, and they would have road trips around our tours and they would just come to every show on a tour. So what was unusual about Jam for the Fans was just that 
all these fans were coming from all over the country together and they got to know each other. And I can't remember which came first. And I never went on this because I thought it would be too weird and probably toxic. But And I don't even know the terminology anymore. But there were internet chat groups back in the 90s. You know, mm-hmm. like little fan digest. Like a chat room. Or something. I don't or- know. But it was called, we, we, we christened it the Neil's Nook. And people would become members of this and they would all get to know each other. And this was, you know, pre-Facebook, but it was that kind of a thing. So our fans knew each other in a way that transcended us. That's amazing. It was amazing, yeah. <laughs> um, I have kind of a personal question that um, I don't know if you want to answer or not, but it's about wanting to be a mother. Oh, yeah. Um, so I read that you had always wanted to be a mother and you have two children now. Um, but I'm wondering after your first marriage ended, what kind of feelings you were experiencing around that particular kind of dream and how you ma- managed them? Well, I had a miscarriage um, with my first husband um, and and it was sort of a tragic time. Um, after that miscarriage, the marriage fell apart and it wasn't because of the miscarriage. It was just, it was just, I mean, maybe it was a tiny bit because of that, but maybe the idea of trying to get pregnant made us both realize that we couldn't stay married to each other. Mm. And the miscarriage was almost a symbol of it, not, it not having a future. Um, so I was, so sort of grappling and and the other thing that happened at the same time was the band broke up and that that was somewhat related but not completely related so i had two crises in my life at that point i was 33 and my marriage of 10 years had 11 years had ended and my band had had changed so that it was katrina and me and katrina had just had her first child so Katrina was in a situation where she was beginning her family and my family had just ended and we needed to figure out a way to continue making music together even though our personal lives were taking different roads. So that was actually a very rich time for me. I wrote my first novel during that time and I started writing my second novel, which I'm still working on, which I'm hoping to publish sometime in the next few years. But I began drafting it way back then. And um, I did publish that first novel. And I wrote, you know, I wrote Love in China, which I think in some ways is one of our best albums, but it was all about heartbreak. And I was very open to a life, a childless life at that point. Um, it wasn't like I was like, okay, I'm not going to have kids now. But I, I thought it very well may, may be that I don't, and that'll be okay. Hmm. You know, I was I'd made peace with the loss at that point of um, that particular dream. But then I met Tom, my my husband now, and we fell in love. And again, I sort of felt like, well, you know, we're we're a little bit older by that time. I was in my late 30s, and he was in his early 40s, and I sort of thought, well, we could be happy together with no kids. We were both writers, and I could see a really great life with him without kids. 
and he was the one who said, "I want to have kids with you. I think we'd be we'd 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 have a great family." And so we were lucky, <laughs> and we did. It's <laughs> great. Um, in terms of feminism, um, you and Katrina both consider yourselves feminists, and you said at one point we're a little too old to be third wave, but we're both in that camp. Um, you were part of the Lilith Fair in 1998 with Katrina. Mm-hmm. And so in my experience, in looking back at how some female musicians talked about feminism in the 90s, it's kind of cringy. There was um, a couple years ago for International Women's Day, the radio station I was working at did like a day of all women. And it was a lot of like 90s artists. And I was like, cool, I'm going to do a Google search and find all these like inspirational things that these women have said about feminism. And I was really surprised that they distanced themselves from the movement and really didn't have anything nice to say about it. Um, Now it seems different. Um, People seem proud to say that they're a feminist Mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. this fourth wave that we're Mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. What has been your experience with feminism? Um. It was never a question in my mind that I was a feminist. I didn't understand and I still don't understand why any anybody would resist the label. Um, and it upsets me very much when women do issue the label, especially when I see them benefiting from the work that feminists throughout history have done. Um, you know, the movement is messy and imperfect, but, uh, every movement is. And, uh, to me, it's very obvious that there is, there is worldwide injustice towards women. And I went to an all girls, Katrina and I both went to an all girls high school, uh, in Northern Virginia. And it had a lot of Southern girls who, who, were staunch Republicans and anti-feminists. And there was definitely a feeling among them that the, that feminism was in the past that, you know, women were now equal. So there was nothing to talk about. And I knew then, and this was the eighties that that wasn't true. I fought, I argued very strongly for the equal rights amendment, which now looks like it might get passed, which is, you know, horrifying to me that as a girl that was something that couldn't that wasn't achieved and that you know 40 years later it still isn't achieved you know i it it makes no sense to me at all what are the specifics of that again equal rights amendment yeah basically women and men should be paid the same got it all right you know period and in the 80s when i was first conscious of of these things, the argument was like, it's so funny to talk about now was like, Oh, but then men and women would have to share bathrooms, you know, and I live in Northampton where like, there aren't any women's and men's bathrooms in Northampton. They're all unisex bathrooms. (laughs) Who cares? You know, like it's with, with, you know, with the trans movement, it's like, you know, let's just get rid of these stupid bathrooms you know, let's just have a bathroom be a bathroom. Right. Get over it, you know? Right, right. So in playing music with your sister, 
Mm-hmm. Um, was wondering how you're feeling about it recently because in quarantine, mm. at least uh, you wrote about it on your blog that you're not able to. Yeah. Ha- um, how does this time allow you to reflect on what you enjoy about making music with her and writing with her and for her? Oh, it's like a constant ache in my heart these days. It is, um, I mean, the pain for me right now is in all the deaths and the illness, the lies the right wing is spewing about what's going on and the, the dishonesty and the, you know, I think very short sighted lack of action that has been taken by the Republican side of the aisle um, and certainly by the administration selfishly and in my personal life I really have everything I need except for my sister and music I'm safe in my house I I live in its lovely town um, and I have a lovely home and my family's all with me and I'm pretty happy and I get to do my writing and my writing classes on zoom so all of that's fine What's not fine is that we've had to cancel all of our shows and I can only see my sister from a distance of 10 feet away. Um, We did do one song together um, and videoed it and put it up on our Facebook page. And today we did, we've been doing Facebook live, you know, one of us, one of us on an iPhone and the other one on the screen, you know, who's holding up the iPhone. (laughs) And we do that once a week. And today we were talking to our fans on Facebook Live about what they would like. And, and we said, you know, on, how about on, on Sunday, um, which is supposed to be a nice day, it's supposed to be sunny and in the 60s, we will get together at Katrina's porch and we will do a little concert. We'll record it and we'll put it on YouTube and then post it on Facebook. So we were taking requests and we plan to do this and I'm going to, go learn those requests. I mean, they're all songs that I wrote, but I have to go, <laughs> you know, practice them. Right. And remember them. A lot of them are from the 90s. And um, and we'll have that to look forward to. So, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I really don't know what's going to happen. I don't know which of our shows in the future are going to stay on the books and which ones are going to have to be canceled. Mm. Um But I do know, and I was just, again, I was just saying this this morning to somebody else. I do know that I will sing with her again. I just don't know when. Mm. And I know we will make another album. I just don't know when. We actually have a bunch of songs for the next album. So that's great. Yeah. You have writing retreats and have run them for many years, first in the big yellow house and now the little blue house. It's a total joy, except, of course, Nobody can come to my house anymore because of the quarantine. Um, So I moved everything to Zoom. How's that going? It's actually great. It's great. It's sort of like what you were saying with Jam with the Fans. It's it's, uh, people from all over can now be in a group together. So I've Mm. got these groups with people from all over the country. And that's very sweet to mix people up and introduce people to you know, I know them all, but they don't know each other. So, and I right. love that. I love introducing wonderful people to each other. 
what instigated the original desire to work with other writers in this format and how have the retreats influenced your approach to writing? Well, back in 2002, and this was when I was writing my first novel, I joined a weekly writing group in Northampton led by a poet named Anna Kerwin. Um, And she taught this method called Amherst Writers and Artists, which is a a very um, sort of open-ended, supportive, write in the moment, and then share fresh work and no no negative feedback given. Um, and, and it worked so well for me as a writer that I thought, you, you know, I, I was just, I was like, well, this works, this is great. And I saw it work <laughs> for other people. And then um, again, this is right after my divorce. My first husband and I had a home in Hatfield, Massachusetts, which is a farming town, um, a family town, you know, a town full of families. And I was now a single woman and I wanted to move to Northampton. And I found this house in Northampton that was too expensive for me. And, um, but I walked into the house and I had a vision of people sitting around the front room writing. And I thought, oh my God, I could do that. I could run writing groups out of my living room. And I did. I mean, like I, I bought the house like the next day. I took a huge gamble, bought the house, and within eight weeks, I was running workshops in there. It just was magic, and I've never stopped. That was 2003. Can you talk about where you live now? You live in Northampton? Yeah. In Western Mass. Um, What's special about the place and how it might inspire your creativity? Oh, my God. I love this place. Katrina and I fell in love with Northampton in the early nineties when we were living in Connecticut and we would come up and see shows at the iron horse and we got to play at the iron horse, you know, right at the beginning of our career. And we just thought this is, if I could live anywhere in the world, I would live here. And we traveled all around the country and all around the continent. And we never found a place we liked more than Northampton. So this is where we settled down. It's definitely my chosen community. I love the fact that it's, a small city, but it has the sort of, um, it's a little bit of a crossroads between Boston and New York. We have a lot of New Yorkers who came up here after 9-11. We have a lot of people who used to live in Boston who came out here to get a quieter life. Um, And it's got the five colleges. So it's full of academics and intellectuals and artists, and it's full of musicians. and it's and it's you know this very progressive community, uh, very accept- it's feminist. You know, it's where Smith College is. My son, I think, really doesn't understand what sexism is because um, he's grown up here. And um, you know, it's 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 a wonderful place. I you know, and so ma- there's so many families here with same-sex parents and so many families here with adoptive adopted children and um it's definitely not perfect but it's it it's family now it's home it's family mm. it's my community i i love it lovely i love it too i yeah. used to have this uh dream 
when I was working in radio that I would move to Northampton and work at the river. (laughs) (gasps) Yeah, you should. Oh. Yeah, maybe I will one day. Maybe you will. Who knows? Uh, Everything could change because of this. Yeah, totally. Um, Okay, so we do this really silly thing called the lightning round on this Mm -hmm. podcast. Just asking you fun little questions. All right, here we go. Um, What was the first song you learned on the guitar? Blowing in the Wind. Batman or Superman? Superman. What is your karaoke song? Oh, um, You're So Vain. (laughs) I was just thinking about that song the other day. (laughs) Clouds in My Coffee? Yes! Uh, What was your favorite radio station as a kid? DC 101. What kind of station was that? A little bit more contemporary than classic rock, but definitely classic rock roots. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Favorite U.S. city? Uh, Well, the first one that came to my head was Manhattan, New York City. Uh, The first album you bought with your own money? Oh, that's easy. Um, The Beatles, 1967 to 1970, the Blue Album. What was the first concert you went to? Well... It depends. The first concert I went to was David Bowie's Let's Dance tour. What? Yeah, that's pretty cool, right? That's better yeah, you, than Beatlemania. You totally win. Thank you. That's so great. Yeah, 1982. Uh, what was it like? Quick synopsis. The only thing I really remember, it was very 80s, you know? It was very David Bowie in the 80s, and I just remember he had like a giant like this big, you can't see my hands, but you know, beach ball of the world. It was like a globe beach ball. And he batted it out into the audience during the dirt when he sang, let's dance. And the audience like flipped it around. Nice. (laughs) Trying to like figure out what that has to do with let's dance, but I know I, I, (laughs) and I may be wrong. It may have been a different song. Who knows? Um, what was the last book you read? Wait, right now I'm reading Camus. Uh, the Plague. Oh, I know. Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed. Is that good? It's okay. It's worth reading, for sure. I like. I liked the title a lot. I haven't yeah, read anything about it. Yeah, she's African American. She's young, the author, and um, it's a it's a first novel, and I think it's a great debut. I think she's going to do great things. What's your dream collaboration? I have it with my sister. Oh. Um, all right, we already know that you like the Beatles more than the Rolling Stones, but who is your favorite Beatle? Oh, you know, it really changes year to year. When I was, I would say for like 20 years, it was John Lennon, and then it was George Harrison, and Tom took me to see Paul McCartney for my 50th birthday in 2017 in Brooklyn at the Barclay Center. And I'd never seen any of the Beatles live before. I was on my feet with my jaw hanging open for three hours. And <laughs> I, I I, will never forget that. And then there's Ringo Starr, who every year on his birthday makes everybody stop and say peace and love. I can't really pick a favorite Beatle. All right, two more questions. Flying or invisibility? Flying. That's why I like Superman. <laughs> Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? I think maybe I'd have to say Northern California. Hmm. It's a good I one. I wouldn't want to live there, but I, I just was stunned by its beauty. I agree. Yeah. All right, that's it. 
Yay! Yeah. Thank you so much. Basic Folk was produced by Laura McCarthy this week, and we'll give a shout-out to recent Emerson graduate Adam Corey, who is also producer for Basic Folk. Congratulations on your graduation. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Alex Stanton of the band Townspeople does our music. I'm Cindy House. Basic Folk is part of the Pantheon podcast group. You can find more information and all of the episodes of Basic Folk at the website cindyhouse.net. And that's it. I'm just going to try to not scratch this poison ivy. It's all I want to do, actually, scratch the poison ivy. But I'm not going to do it because it's a bad idea. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.